This is On Script, bringing you conversations about current scholarship on Scripture. We're your hosts, Matt and Matt. Thanks for listening. Hello, OnScript listeners and collaborators. Really excited about this episode because after about six months, or actually eight months of doing this podcast, my co-host Matt Bates and I are actually co-hosting an episode together. Uh, we're both we're both pretty busy in different time zones, and and I think there's a uh, maybe a slight reticence on Matt's part to be heard with me in public, but he's he's graciously agreed to co-host uh, finally together. So Matt and I have been Matt and I have been friends since we attended Regent College together uh, back beginning in 2001. Is that when you started Matt back in 2001? Yes, two, 2001. So and did we did we meet in Ian Province uh, hermeneutics and criticism class? Is that where we first met? Quite quite possibly. Okay. That would be my guess. But I don't I don't remember although undoubtedly you were a striking figure. Um, my yes. memory is poor for such things. Yes, yes, that's definitely true. And we also went to the same church, so that that's possibly where we met too. But in any case, we struck up a friendship, and our uh, throughout our friendship, our, our discussions often um, devolved into biblical studies, uh, which is the backdrop, really, of us wanting to do this podcast. But I'm also thrilled to have as our guest today, Chris Tilling, who is Senior Lecturer of New Testament Studies at St. Melitus College and author of the book Paul's Divine Christology, published by Morsey back in 2012 and then republished by Urbans in 2015. So, Chris, welcome to OnScript. Hey, thanks. It's absolutely fantastic to be here. I've been listening to your podcasts for as long as they've been going, and I absolutely love them. So it's a real honor to be to be discussing with you guys, chatting with you. Oh, it's so good to have you. So, so thanks a lot. And uh, I've heard uh, other interviews you've done, so I was excited to have you on. So, our our plan today is to do something a little bit different than a straight up book discussion. Uh, we're going to be stepping back to look at a hot and happening topic right now in New Testament Christology, and in particular, question the question of whether, where, when, and how New Testament writers articulate the divinity of Christ. So we're going to get into that in a moment. But uh, first, Chris, I'm wondering if you could just tell us a bit about yourself, your background, whether you grew up in a religious context, and how you got into New Testament studies. Well, no, I didn't grow up in a religious context. I um, I, I went to church first uh, when I was in my late teens for uh, well, the obvious reasons that there were pretty girls in the church there. That was what <laughs> threw me in. So I can I can tell you the the hormones that the Holy Spirit used to, uh, <laughs> to take me to church. But that, that, was, that began a long process that um, led me to uh, eventually becoming a Christian shortly before I went to university. But, the, um, but the, the really defining moment for me, insofar as it impacts my New Testament scholarship, was a time I spent in a local library. I was looking into introductions to the Bibles because I, I didn't have any knowledge of what was in the Bible and how to read it. And I uh, inadvertently picked up uh, an introduction to the Bible written by Christadelphians, and uh, their Christology is quite similar to Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. Uh, it's a so, sort of an Arian take on on Jesus, broadly speaking, Arian. Um, and um, uh, and that set the cat amongst the pigeons, got me questioning who is Jesus uh, from the very earliest um, of my Christian uh, life. And when I went to university, I studied under Richard Borkham for a while. Uh, which further fueled some of those questions. So uh, that's probably um, uh, the most formative um, impact on my New Testament scholarship was that little book written by Christadelphians. That's interesting that that Christology was really at the beginning of your journey. Yeah, yeah. So Matt and I were hoping to map the field of of New Testament Christology a little bit, Chris. And um, I'm wondering if you could maybe give a stab at that and help explain the background state of the discussion on that topic. So obviously we can't go into real depth on, on all the nuances right at the beginning oh, here, but maybe you yeah. could touch on maybe some of the big questions being asked right now and where they come from. Particularly as it relates to the divinity of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically that. Um, well, I suppose, well, there's a couple of different questions in play when it comes to understanding whether or not the early Christians saw Jesus as divine. And it concerns both 
Christ language in the New Testament as well as the nature of monotheism and usually that's understood to be taken to mean Jewish monotheism and uh, there's a broad spectrum of different views that overlap uh, across both of those different uh, questions I think but I think it's probably fair to say that uh, you have those who would deny uh, a divine Christology on the one hand um, that is to say that Jesus um, isn't how we understand this is to be included in the divine identity they'll say that this must be a later development um, you get people like Morris Casey uh, who will make this argument on the basis of an understanding of of Jewish monotheism um, uh, still others uh, like Jimmy Dunn in his own very nuanced and, and intelligent way uh, again um, on the basis of his understanding of Jewish monotheism but also subordinationist texts in the New Testament which speak of Jesus as not fully divine um, and, and a bunch of others, James McGrath and, and so on and so forth. Then you'll get those who will affirm an early divine Christology. And, and the, you know, to, 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 to give an accurate taxonomy of, of how that's all done and the different camps there are is, is complicated. But I would say there are those that emphasize early Christian experience of Jesus, people like Medad Fatehi and Max Turner. Um, so they will say that Christ is mediated through the Holy Spirit. And the only uh, one mediated through the Holy Spirit in scriptures of Israel is God. He's God, therefore, divine Christology. Um, you'll get those who will emphasize the worship of, of Jesus, famously Larry Hurtado, um, in his own way, Crispin Fletcher Louis. Um, you will get those who will emphasize the, the, something called the identity or the divine identity, Richard Borkham, famously, that Jesus is included in that divine identity on the basis of certain uh, categories that overlap Jewish God talk and early Christian uh, Christ talk. You'll get those who will emphasize hermeneutics. That, so it's a certain reading of the scriptures of Israel that leads to a divine Christology. And, and there are a few more. I've probably spoken for too long already, but that's a broad brushstroke overview of some of the questions um, and players in the field. Uh, that's a really helpful uh, map of the field, and and we'll get into some of that. Uh, Matt Bates, wonder if you had a um, want to take a question from here. Yeah, um, and some listeners may be aware, some may not be aware that there is a scholarly problem surrounding whether or not Christology at the origins of Christianity can be called divine in the first place. Um, some would tend to think perhaps, well, it's obvious that Paul and the apostles had a divine Christology since Jesus is God. Um, now, you've kind of mapped out some various players. What's the underlying rationale? Uh, why would some object um, to the idea that, that uh, if you could probe into that a little bit farther? Now, you mentioned subordinationism and so on and so forth. But what are some further reasons why people object to the idea that Jesus is divine? Okay, um, well... Um, some of the most important arguments, I think, are provided by a couple of the names I've already mentioned. Um, Morris Casey, in his book From Jewish Prophet to Gentile God, would deny the possibility of, of a Pauline divine Christology in particular, because it would breach Jewish monotheism. Um, you can't have a divine being next to the one God of Israel. That makes no sense in light of Jewish monotheism. Therefore, it must be that uh, divine Christology emerged when the church was less Jewish and more Gentile. Um, and that starts to happen um, uh, with the Johannine community and John's gospel. And so you have, as his thesis, from Jewish prophet to Gentile God. Uh, and uh, certainly as it pertains to Paul's letters, he's going to turn around to the likes of uh, Larry Hurtado, um, who want to emphasize the worship of Jesus as being definitive for whether or not a Christology is divine or not. And he's, he's simply going to say, well, where's the evidence? Uh, it doesn't seem to be that Christ is worshipped um, in, in Paul's letters, not in any concrete sense or an indisputable sense. Um, Jimmy Dunn has uh, has um, uh, furthered that line of thought in his, his really fantastic little book, Did the First Christians Worship Jesus?, which was published by SPCK a few years ago. He He again argues... Um, essentially, no, they didn't worship Jesus. The evidence is too sparse. It's ambiguous. Venerated, maybe, but not worshipped. Therefore, we shouldn't speak of a divine Christology in the fullest sense. Others will point to theological themes, uh, say the uh, we've mentioned the subordinationist texts. But, you know, very concretely, you'll get this refrain in Second Corinthians, for example, which, which speaks of the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ has a God. And, and this will then, this, this language problematizes any simplistic understanding, so the argument goes, of a divine Christology. Um, 
I've probably spoken for too long again, but that probably gives um, some food for thought, some something to chew on. Yeah, it does. And uh, I think a, an additional angle on that would be um, those who, who want to read an early adoptionism as part of this as, as, as we kind of trace out, you know, a, a developmental history, uh, wanting to argue wanting to argue that that in fact uh, Jesus was not you know eternally begotten of the son but was eventually adopted and and looking especially to greco-roman models of uh, of emperor uh, worship and how that connected to the adoption of sons within the imperial cult and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so that's another angle, it seems like, that uh, is uh, another avenue that's been important. Yes, yes, and possibly also worthwhile mentioning, of course, that those who will focus on a particular understanding of intermediary figures or however you want to speak of, mm-hmm. of uh, semi-divine beings who seem to be exalted in many different ways in Jewish texts, whether worshipped, um, whether given the divine name, um, whether robed in glory or seated on a throne or whatever else it is, these these figures, which um, in in many renderings aren't fully divine, look an awful lot like Jesus, who is a second being next to God. And so, therefore, we shouldn't be taking this in a proto-trinitarian direction, but rather reading it in light of Jewish intermediary figures, where Jesus is simply an intermediary figure without the divine identity, to use Borkham's language. Do, do you think there's a... a- a challenge of even defining what we mean by divine in this discussion? Like, cause you just said these intermediary figures aren't fully divine. Yes. What yes. Do, what do you th- Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what, what um, Matthew Bates would have to say on that. Actually. Um, I've just finished reading Jesus monotheism by Crispin Fletcher Louis, you see, and uh, he doesn't get round to defining the word until the final excursus. And uh, it's used. The word is used six hundred times in the book before then, almost. Um, and so it is. It's a real need to 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 define, I think, terms as as best as we can. I'd love to hear what you'd have to say about that word, Matthew. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, Crispin and, uh, actually was a, a previous guest on on script, and uh, we had a conversation. A lot of our conversation, interestingly, uh, uh, surrounded his excursus and his appendix. And uh, as I kind of felt like you did, uh, that I, I was waiting for. Uh, the ball to drop, and then when we got to the end, one of the things that fascinated me, I suppose, um, uh, about um, about Crispin's approach was um, the idea that um, uh, whenever he begins to talk about the divine, um, the idea that the divine can be shared in some sense, and uh, wanting to kind of move in a more participatory direction with some of mm-hmm. that. But I agree. Um, I think that as I've been thinking through this issue of Christology, um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is a model maybe centering on divine persons. And obviously a big part of that is going to be uh, uh, talking about what we mean by divine. We have those on the one hand who want to eschew Greek categories and say that those were kind of alien to the New Testament. Uh, and Bauckham sort of presses in this direction, wanting to say that, you know, that uh, the earliest Christians weren't interested in categories or weren't very interested in, in categories like God's omniscience or omnipotence or so on and so forth. And these are later kind of Greek terms, but that they had a more narratively constructed idea uh, of divinity, uh, that, uh, that Yahweh was the divine one, and he was someone who had revealed himself through history and through story, and that we have to construct our ideas of divinity around that. Uh, I'm still pondering, to be honest. I mm. think that it's a major problem, uh, and uh, that it maybe is the problem uh, in terms of how we think about uh, this um, divine Christology uh and uh, so anyway, circling back, I, I wanted to I think this is a good opportunity to, to hit into your thesis in your book a little bit, Chris, as um, you have a, like a, a novel and clever way of advancing discussion uh, at, in terms of uh, framing divine Christology. And uh, you, you want to move to a relational model. And I was I was hoping that you could explain for both myself, uh, for Matt, uh, and ho- hopefully for our audience too, uh, what you're up to in the book in terms of your major thesis and how does this move us forward uh, and uh, this, this business of a relational model? Yeah, okay. Uh, I think um, what I'm trying to do uh, is adjust the procedure for understanding how we engage with these questions in the first place. So that's certainly one thing I'm doing. Um, that's worthwhile mentioning. As far as I've seen it, a lot of the discussions about whether Christology is divine or not um, in, in earliest Christianity, bearing in mind some of the nuances around that word and so on, uh, I, I, I tend to think a lot of the discussions have proceeded as follows. 
we spend an awful lot of time in very important, unquestionably important intermediary, uh, 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 sorry, um, Second Temple Jewish texts, uh, whether they're in or outside of the canon. Um, and only then do we go to the earliest Christian texts and ask ourselves whether these, that whether certain parallels help us explain um, the meaning of Christology. And what this tends to mean is that there's an atomized focus on Paul's letters in particular. Uh, there will be a focus perhaps on the Philippians hymn, Philippians chapter 2, and one verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And what my book is trying to do is to say, no, if we're going to understand Paul's Christology, uh, a representative of the earliest Christology, then to Paul we need to go. We need to understand how all of this language in Paul maps out uh, on its own terms in Paul's letters. Um, and, um, and that's what I endeavor to do in, in, in my book. And then I go to the second temple texts to ask whether, um, some of the parallels, for example, the life of Adam and Eve, um, uh, the similitudes of Enoch are helpful for our understanding of Paul's Christology. So there's a procedural, uh, matter, um, which I, I think makes sense and clarifies some of the issues. I make a, a unique, um, contribution i think to the um, understanding what jewish monotheism entails uh and that's where I, I i rely an awful lot on the shema and um speak of the transcendent uniqueness of god in terms of the, the categories that we find inherent in the jewish texts themselves a relational pattern which seems to identify the transcendent uniqueness of god not simply borkham's categories not simply worship in in Hurtado's arguments but a slightly more complex pattern um, I also um, um, uh, do some uh, work with epistemology because I want to look at Christology. I want to know patterns of knowing in Paul so that we can better approximate to what would constitute Christology for Paul rather than um, maybe imposing our own um, um, ideas onto that. So, for example, Jimmy Dunn would say that you don't have Christology as such in Paul's letters in a developed sense. That only comes about in John's gospel when it's more propositional. And now whatever we think of his understanding of propositions, which is certainly something I'd want to challenge there, um, I think that is to uh, it's to suggest that we need to calibrate what we mean by theology and how it relates to relationality and propositions, which is something I endeavour to do again in this book. In other words, it's a more inductive study of, of Paul's letters, the nature of Jewish monotheism, um, uh, in a way to understand the nature of Paul's divine Christology. Yeah, Chris, I was uh, I was really appreciative of that kind of approach because you were starting from the vantage point of how would Paul have discuss have thought about this subject rather yeah. than what are the categories we're used to dealing with. Um, it's also interesting that um, just touching on your point about the Shema on on six four because my one of the people I worked with when I was in Germany was Nathan McDonald who wrote. Mm. Yes, uh, Deuteronomy and the meaning of monotheism. And I saw that you drew from his book. Yes, I love um, the book, and, and that was great because in Deuteronomy six four he talks about how one um, here was a, the Lord of God, Lord is one, mm. um, is not a statement about ontological oneness um, in the divine sphere or something like that, but it's about Israel's relationship to that God. Yeah, and he, he draws on parallels from Song of Songs where one um, is a way that the man talks about the woman. Um, not that she's the ontological, you know, the only woman that exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's his one. Yeah. That's a pattern of relationship, as you talked about. So I, I thought I thought that was a really helpful approach. Um, and, and one of the follow up questions too that I, I have for you, um, just by way of unpacking one of one of your really helpful examples, is in First Corinthians eight six. Could you just talk about how people have picked over that verse, but then how they kind of missed the the forest for, for the trees there? Yeah, well, there's, yeah, there's a lot of really helpful uh, work on 1 Corinthians 8, 6. I mean, amongst those scholars who would want to affirm a divine Christology, they will want to suggest that uh, all the Greek words that you find in uh, the Subtuagant rendering of the Shema are found in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, only the word uh, the words are split between God the Father and the Lord Kyrios of the Shema, uh, Kyrios Jesus. Um, so this is a way of speaking of what is called Christological monotheism, to use Tom Wright's language. And Richard Borkham has endorsed this, and, and many others. 
And then you have those on the other hand. I mean, interestingly, I've just, just as I said, I've read Crispin's book. He, he also comes up with an, a very novel approach to that particular text by, um, uh, with numerical analysis, um, uh, which he thinks thoroughly, um, endorses the Christological monotheist perspective that Jesus is included in the divine identity. But then you get those like James McGrath, uh, um, who will suggest that no, Jesus isn't included in the divine identity, but, um, um, spoken of alongside the, 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 the Jewish Shema. Um, others will want to speak about Jesus in terms of wisdom category here, uh, Jimmy Dunn in his own way, uh, so that Jesus, okay, certainly is related to the Shema, but is, it's more about um, it's more about uh, wisdom as an intermediary figure here. So there's a, this, you know, a lot of debate about uh, the prepositions in the Greek, which is where Dunn goes, um, uh, about the nature of uh, of the Kyrios and how it sits next to the Theos, the God. Uh, so that tends to be what people have have done with that verse. And what I do is to suggest that, hang on a minute, this is part of a much larger argument. Um, which then relates to a number of the things that we've already discussed vis-a-vis relationality. And in the first few verses of chapter 8, Paul sets the terms of the discussion, I think, in debate with the Corinthian knowledgeable. Um, and this is Volker Geckler's argument, in which he argues that the, there's an intellectualization of monotheism. Uh, there is no God but one, quoting the, these, these opponents, these Pauline opponents. And they were using that theological proposition to justify certain practices, namely to go along to the idol temples and enjoy the the meat sold there, um, because the idol doesn't exist. So why why do I need to fuss about whether it's been dedicated to a god or not, or whether it's eaten in the presence of a god? The god doesn't exist. There is no god but one. And as you know, the argument pans out that this was destroying some uh, other Christians. Now, Paul's argument... Um, in the first three verses, sets the tone for the whole passage, which then goes through to 1 Corinthians 10. And he says that you just got the wrong way of knowing. It's, it's your, your, your understanding theology wrong. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he speaks about that love in, in, in the terms of Jewish monotheism and its relationship to the Shema, where true Jewish uh, monotheism is related to the loving commitment of of uh of um people to the one god over against idolatry so this is the relational monotheism that i i spoke about earlier on and that then pans out with paul speaking of relationship with the risen lord jesus over against idolatry in the rest of the argument and eight six is just one example of that yeah and i guess is the point that you wouldn't contrast idols and jesus unless from a jewish framework unless jesus was ontologically on par with Yahweh? Is that the idea? Well, that's certainly one part of the argument that's panned out much more in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but it's also the terms in which that is done. So Paul draws on a lot of um, intertexts from the Pentateuch, uh, which contrast the people in relationship with Yahweh um, and their giving in and their capitulation to idolatry and the judgment that comes on them for that. And he takes that in a Christological direction quite explicitly in in 1 Corinthians 10 and relates, in other words, that story of the relationship between Yahweh and Israel with the relationship between Jesus and the church. Well, Chris, one of the things that uh, that I'm curious to hear more from you about uh, is some of the things you do in your appendix, as I'm thinking a lot about um, uh, consolidating uh, the Christological world post-Bacham, post-Hurtado, uh, post-Dunn. Yeah. Uh, they've all done ter- terrific work, and I, I'm, I'm thinking about the chart forward. And yeah. uh, it seems like you're beginning to chart a path for yourself forward uh, and perhaps for the whole field as well uh, in uh in this appendix, uh, and uh, you're, you're optimistic in, in, in saying that you hope uh, perhaps that uh, this relationship model uh, might help us cross uh, Lessing's famous broad, ugly ditch uh, between history and theology. Yeah. Um, could you spell out a little bit more how it is that this model might be a way forward to help bring together history and theology? Sure. Um, I mean, my thinking has developed quite a lot since the, I wrote that appendix. Um, so I've, I probably would um, write a, a different chapter now. Um, but um, what I was arguing back then was uh, uh, to suggest that um, if we understand Christology in terms of relationship with the risen Lord, 
then we see that it is that relationship with the risen Lord that is both now and then. It's what generated the early Christian um, uh, testimony, uh, you know, that the earliest Christian uh, uh, documents that we have relying on testimony, however we understand testimony, are generated because of relationships that people had with the risen Lord. This is this is a point that's made from diverse perspectives, whether you're um, whether you're Richard Borkham, whether you're Dale Allison, whether you're Jimmy Dunn. Um, you know, everyone wants to emphasize the importance of relationship with the risen Lord right at the very beginning as constituting the earliest Jesus tradition. And so doing historical Jesus work. But my argument also suggests that it's relationship with the risen Lord that constitutes divine Christological discourse as well. And so it's a way of mapping um, uh, the divide, uh, sorry, a way of bridging the divide by focusing on relationality and then as well seeing how development can take place. Um, in relationships, things develop and in early Christology, things can be seen to develop. And that's probably where I'd adjust some of my views now, um, uh, in that regard. But I think, I think, Math, Matthew, what you're hit, hitting, hit, hitting on there is, is really vital. The next big step, I think, uh, for, um, early Christian um, scholarship when it comes to Christology is a coherent explanation for the origin of divine Christology. Uh, you know, how do we get there? How come that the Apostle Paul endorses a divine Christology? How, you know, whatever terms that we think that that took place, where does it come from? It, and and uh, of course, Larry Hurtado's um, argument is well known in Lord Jesus Christ that it's basically to be associated with early Christian experience of the risen Lord, together with a few other impulses. Um, but I think there are huge problems with, with that particular perspective. And, and Crispin Fletcher-Louis is being very brave in, in suggesting that we need a completely different model now for understanding the development of Christology. I'm not on board with him on, on the details of his argument, but on the need, absolutely. Uh, that seems to me to be a, a crying need now. That's what we need to answer. Do you think, uh, just as a follow-up question, um, that there's a weakness uh, in Hurtado's project on the historical Jesus in particular, uh, in terms of him not integrating uh, his Christology. Uh, it's it's centered really on the resu- on the post-resurrection experience, as you just mentioned, uh, of the apostles, uh, but doesn't really dip back into the historical Jesus's life very much. And that seems like one thing that uh, Fletcher Lewis is trying to mm. do is to is to is to say no, it was more organic than that. It emerged more. Out of Jesus's, um, you know, his own earthly historical life, um, do you think that's an important need to address, or would you be um, more in Hurtado's camp saying, "No, I think that this is really something that happens post-resurrection"? Um, I'm entirely with Crispin on this. Um, I don't endorse his um, his own particular um, positive and constructive argument, not in in, in detail anyway. Uh, but I think his criticism of Hurtado on this point is is on the ball. Uh, I mean, I've always thought that an explanation which relies on early Christian experience as the causal factor for the emergence of a consensus on divine Christology seems to me to be highly unlikely. Uh, the, the early Christian experiences led to certain um, rejections of the place of Torah in Christian life. There was tremendous debate about all of these things when it's based on experience uh, of the early Christians. And so it, does, it doesn't seem to me to be a plausible uh, explanation, um, if we're using that in a historical term, for, uh, for the cause of uh, the emergence of divine Christology. And, uh, and Crispin has, of course, added a few other points um, which I think are very important uh, to this. He 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 suggests that that um, Larry Hurtado has too quickly bought in to form critical assumptions when it comes to reading the Synoptic Gospels. And I'm personally quite a fan of the work of Richard Borkham and his um, and his thesis in Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I've done an awful lot of reading around um, uh, uh, social memory theory and how that pans out. Um, so that there's a there's a sense in which I'm strongly with Crispin on this. I do think that form critical assumptions can't um, dictate the terms uh, with as much um, self confidence as, as they have in the past. But he also suggests that 
that Narihatara hasn't paid enough attention to the incarnational nature of early Christology. It isn't about the, the risen Lord simply, it's also about the characteristics of the man Jesus Christ that determines the nature of early Christology, and I think he's right on that. What, what, what do you mean by that? characteristics of the man jesus christ well I, this is this is to speak in um in light of crispin's argument what he means by that is to suggest that say in the philippians hymn um what we have here is a description in the first part uh of philippians 2 um 6 to 9 of the earthly life of jesus which is the basis for the worship of christ um so it isn't it isn't about the worship of christ the risen lord um, in detachment from the activities of the man Jesus Christ in the salvific event of his life, death, and resurrection. Mm. Mm. Um, so we, we, we can't, we can't detach the worship of Christ from the life of Jesus. Um, that's, that's his argument, mm. uh, in a nutshell. Um, and, um, he, sh- he shows how Larry Hurtado has tended to overlook that, um, in his handling of the Gospels. And, and son of man language. Now, that's where I'm, I'm not so sure about Crispin's argument, but I think the general approach seems to me to be a, a, a valuable criticism. Yeah. Um, Matt, I was just thinking that there's some ways in which your, your book, The Birth of the Trinity, touches on or, or roots the, the idea of the Trinity in Jesus' own self-conception. Do you want to just touch on that briefly? Because I think that's interesting, like the ways that this is maybe rooted in how do we root this in the historical Jesus? Yeah, um, well, obviously we have the baptism of Jesus, uh, where we we see language of um, "You're my son," uh, and uh, and we have the idea obviously connected with the baptism of spirit anointing and things like that. Uh, that would be an important touch point. One of the things that interests me, obviously, is early Christian scriptural exegesis and how that contributed to all of this. Uh, one of the things I noticed, for instance, with regard to Psalm 2, is that this is not just direct speech uh, whenever we have uh, it reported, you know, um, you are my son. Uh, but in fact, when you go back and look at the psalm, there's an indirectness to the speech. The son is the one that's reporting uh, the words that were spoken to him at some prior time or during that event. Uh, but it's a reported speech in the psalm, which lent itself to be understood then by later interpreters um, as perhaps uh, a conversation that the father and the son had had in uh, maybe time eternal, uh, who knows when, uh, but at some uh, prior time uh, that then uh, was uh, being reflected in the in the baptism. And so as Jesus then was uh, in his earthly life uh, reflecting on the significance of his baptism, uh, then he would have been thinking uh, about uh, the ways in which this spoke of a, of a father and a son uh, with the Spirit's involvement as well, too. Uh, so anyway, some of, some of those things, there's much more that could be said, um, uh, especially I think of uh, the use of Psalm 110 uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Mark 12, 35 through 37, uh, and then again uh, in the Passion story, uh, the use of Psalm 110 as it's married to Daniel. All these things I think do have... Mm-hmm. Um, possible Trinitarian implications and implications for Christology too. Mm. Yeah, Matthew, um, could I follow up with a question? Is that all right? Because uh, I'd, I'd love to hear in light of your fantastic book, The Birth of the Trinity, which you cost me a lot of money. I just want to say <laughs> you, you can... I'll enjoy spending the royalties, um, you know, uh, <laughs> undoubtedly. Um, I'll, yes, right. I'll, it, you might even be able to buy half a, a latte from uh, from yes. some. With, uh, from yes, the I'll share. I'll share the half latte I get <laughs> with you at SBL. Right, you'll get a quarter of it. But do you think that there is room for arguing that the historical Jesus, if we understand, let me use a different phrase: um, the real Jesus, the real historical Jesus, not simply the Jesus that can be known through historical methods, but I mean the the historical Jesus as the real Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, can we ground divine Christology in his teachings and activities prior to the resurrection, do you think? Yes, I, I think I would be on, on the side of Crispin Fletcher Lewis here, and it sounds like yourself as well, and thinking that uh, this is an important critique that Crispin, uh, I think, um, puts forward, uh, I think, over against especially Hurtado's program. So I do think so. Um how that works, I think, uh, is is uh, a 
there's a combination of things to look at. Of course, one of the things that interests me is uh, is this business of prosopological exegesis. And I do think that uh, we have evidence that the historical Jesus did use this. Uh, and I think you could make a good case that this is not just uh, the later church sort of, you know, putting words in Jesus's lips as they were doing some sort of midrash or something like that. Uh, so I do think that we can and we need to uh, root it more thoroughly in the in the historical Jesus. Yeah. Matt, so like what you described in Jesus' own teachings, like if we think that Jesus really did quote from the Psalms, was it Psalm 2 there? Or, or which Psalm well, was it? Psalm 2 is is, is the, at the baptism. Yeah, uh, and so that's when he's reflecting on it, though, which one's that? Uh, where Psalm 110. Oh, yeah, okay. That it's especially... So like if, if, he's, if he's quoting Psalm 110 and um, understands himself as a as one of those people in that psalm, that situates him in in some time prior to his incarnation, presumably, right? So so we're talking about potentially someone with a memory that goes back before his incarnation. Would you go that far? Well, the way that I currently prefer to speak to this, this is, these are obviously matters I'm still thinking about, would be to talk about what we might call a theodramatic ontology, um, that Jesus believed he preexisted to such a degree uh, that the prophet David could speak from the person of the future Christ, and Jesus is that person. Mm-hmm. He is that Christ. So I don't know that I would want to go – I would want to say that he could you know, ha- have some – uh, pre-existent memory or something like that. Um, I think that would be to, to push beyond the evidence in ways that I'm at least not currently comfortable um, with. Sure. But I, I do think that nevertheless, we would want to say that there's some sort of um, uh, prophetic ontology, or as I would like to call it, a theodramatic ontology, where where Jesus believed that prophets could speak in in the person of somebody else, uh, mm-hmm. and that the prophets had spoken in the person of somebody else, and the prophets had, in fact, uh, entered into another person, and that another person uh, had dialogued with God the Father in some way, yeah. uh, and that Jesus then is identified as that person. So that's the kinds of arguments. Awesome. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a reverse uh, prophecy. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. So, so yeah, whether or not it's an actual memory, um, it's an identification of himself with that, with that figure. Yes. And Matthew, how are you using the word ontology there? It sounds absolutely fascinating what you're doing there. Well, um, ontology, I suppose, in the sense of, of what's real uh, and, uh, and you know, the, the idea of existence, you know, is obviously bound up with ontology. And obviously this gets us into conversations about functional ontology versus uh, mm. a more static ontology, whether we want to talk about, you know, essence in its own right. And obviously we're getting into philosophical matters that I'm probably barely comfortable with. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you, you may be more comfortable with it than I am. Uh, and it's actually one of the questions. I, I do script out some of my questions in advance at least uh, to a degree, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you was actually about ontology. Uh, <laughs> hey, way to turn so, that uh, around! <laughs> so exactly, this is that you know sort of the pivot where I, I say I have no idea how to answer that question, uh, Chris. Uh, I'm going to punt and uh, you know and uh, send it back in your direction. So this is especially toward the end of your book uh, where where you begin to talk about uh, about functional ontic divisions in Christology. Um, and I actually wrote a quote down because I thought it was uh, a nice launching point for a question. So here's the quote I wrote down uh, from your book, page 267, 268. Uh, you say this, It is also to be noted that the language of the Christ event has often led to the expression of a functional Pauline divine Christology as opposed to an ontological one, arguably because the distinction between function and ontology made sense at a time when theological recourse to event was becoming popular in German theology. However, the relationality that one finds in Paul and in much late modern philosophy suggests that the functional ontological distinction is based on philosophical commitments discordant with Paul's relational intuitions. So I had a couple uh, questions on that, and uh, since you've already broached them, uh, maybe I'll just hit you with them both at once, and you can you can uh, pot if you want, uh, or uh, hopefully you have something more clever to say than I would have anyway. Uh, so first, then, can you explain what the functional ontic divide is and why it might matter? And then my second part, uh, possible follow-up question was, uh, you go on to suggest that the Christ relation pattern might help overcome this functional ontic dichotomy. How hmm. so? Um, well, what I mean by that distinction is um, it's a description of particularly German 
New Testament scholarship in the um, uh, in the wake of sixties uh, seventies era, really, I suppose is is so in the wake wake of the Boltman School, uh, people like Kummer um, and um, um, uh, name that's just completely gone from my head. But this 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 um, type of scholarship often wanted to say, look, Jesus behaves an awful lot like God. Does God function things like salvation um, uh, and uh, and perhaps even some understanding of Christ's role in creation, in judgment, and and that also with recourse to certain texts which speak of God doing this. But they don't want to suggest that that means that Jesus is actually God, ontologically God, but rather is behaving like God. In other words, they want to back away from a Christology which endorses too firmly the earliest Christian um, uh, proto-Trinitarianism, uh, which I think begins very, very early. They want to back away from that in light of language which nevertheless suggests it on the basis of this uh, distinction. And I think that there are theological um, and I think also political reasons behind that. But um, that's what I'm addressing um, when I speak about this, there being a functional, uh, a distinction between functional and ontological um, in Pauline scholarship. Now, how I think that is overcome by focusing on relationality is to suggest that there are different ways of understanding what reality is. And a lot of our language has been dominated by Aristotelian ontological categories, namely that what a thing is, um, a thing's isness, <laughs> a thing's ontic reality is established prior to that thing being in relationship with something else. In other words, relationality is incidental to ontology. I mean, this is classic Aristotelianism, and that has dominated a lot of our Christological discourse. Uh, so we tend to think of the divinity of Christ, Jesus's godness, as something distinct from the relationship between Christ and other things, but rather is about the unchangeable essence of Jesus. Hence, a lot of discussion goes into the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. And so Gordon Fee, classically, in his book Pauline Christology, um, essentially endorses Aristotelian ontology in the structures that he generates and the argumentative focus um, when he speaks of divine ontology, it essentially means ontology without relationality, without relationships, relationships being incidental um, to that um, ontological isness. And what my argument attempts to do is to question that ontological assumption. Um, and I think in, in light of Paul's relational intuitions, we shouldn't subordinate relationality to isness. It's not incidental, but constitutive of something's being. And so that's what I'm hinting at in in the appendix. Yeah, it seems like that kind of uh, might connect to social models, the Trinity and perichoresis and all of that business. Um, one of the things uh, I guess that uh, it, it does make me think about uh, is the philosophical underpinnings of all that. Um, you know, obviously the other Aristotelian Thomistic tradition that would affirm substance as being more primal than relation. What mm. philosophical resources um have you found making the case for, for a, a relational ontology that you found particularly helpful? Is there anything you can point at? Oh, goodness. Um, uh, this is taking me back in my research now. Uh, but, um, yeah, there's quite a lot of, as I say, say in the passage that you read out, late modern philosophical texts, which will emphasize um, a relational understanding of, of ontology. I wish I was in my office now and I'd be able to look, look at my bookshelf uh, but um, let me just try and think. Uh, there are both resources, I think. OK, well, let me just be broader here. There are resources in contemporary um, uh, philosophical discourse as it relates to ontology, um, uh, not only modern continental philosophy, uh, um, but um, streams that go into analytic philosophy as well. Um, uh, um, and another name escapes me, uh, the main analytic philosopher. Anyway, there are modern philosophical uh, traditions that give us resources for understanding ontology in relational terms, but I don't think 
in its its limited uh, uh, to that. I think it also goes into the Christian tradition, both in the 20th century and prior to that. Now, obviously, uh, a lot hinges on the Bartian um, move um, to have the doctrine of the Trinity at the forefront of our understanding of God. And this has led to, as you pointed out, certain social understandings of the Trinity, um, Moltmann and, and others. But I don't think they are necessarily the best conversation partners in all of this. Um, I do think that there are some potential problems with social Trinitarianism. Um, I, but I, so I think it actually goes back earlier than that as well. I think that there are resources, even in Thomas, yeah, Thomas, I think, um, can be understood slightly um, unfairly uh, by some scholarship to to be projecting this ontic blob that that you know this that the most important thing is divine simplicity and so on. Now, I understand how that works out with his with his summer. He begins with a discourse on 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 simplicity and so on. But it is the processions of distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, that constitutes that ontological simplicity as well. So we, we have room, even within the Thomistic tradition, um, for understanding isness uh, in in um, uh, relational terms. And then, of course, you can go back to the Cappadocians. Now, I know this reading has been challenged, and I am not. I'm simply not. Um, uh, um, I don't know enough about the debates to be able to adjudicate, uh, but I, I I know that there are those who would say, look, you go back to the Cappadocians, this is like John Zizoulis, you, you have the resources for relational ontology there. Uh, but then in more recent readings by Lewis Ayres and, and Steve Holmes and others, they will question whether that move was there at all, actually, uh, whether we can actually speak of the Cappadocians in terms of relational ontology. I don't know, I can't adjudicate. But one way or another, across the Christian tradition, medieval, early church, um, late modern, uh, I think we have a whole host of different resources for helping us think through these questions. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, Chris, uh, just wanted to switch gears for a moment uh, to another issue that comes up in the Gospels. Uh, in as I as I've been reading uh, Richard Hayes' book recently, um, mm-hmm. both his reading backwards and echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, where he he develops an argument for divine Christology in the Gospels, all four Gospels. And one of the things that I haven't yet seen him address, I'm not finished, uh, is the question of divine agents. Mm. And and I'm not talking about intermediaries here, uh, which I think is a separate discussion, but when when people act in the capacity of God, sort of on his behalf. So I'm thinking from the Old Testament, you have cases where, where God says explicitly to Moses when he's on his way to Pharaoh, you're going to be God and Aaron's going to be your prophet. Mm-hmm. So so Moses is kind of embodying God there, but he's not God incarnate. Um, and and so you could look at his patterns of behavior or other people's patterns of relating to him and say, if you only look at those relationships, you might think, well, he's being portrayed as divine. Mm-hmm. Um, but in actuality, he's an agent acting on God's behalf uh, in his um, sort of in, in a dramatic sense. So who, who's to say that like the way that a lot of people have done Christology, in the, particularly in the synoptics, isn't a mistaken misreading of Jesus kind of as a divine agent and not God incarnate, so to speak? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you, you know, this is an area that I'm, I'm presently, uh, look, I'm, I'm thinking through. Uh, on the one hand, we've got scholars like Brant Pitra and Richard Hayes, uh, who are trying to argue for a, a divine Christology on the, on the basis of that kind of language and in the synoptics, but others like Daniel Kirk, um, who, who are going to deny it. So I'm really waiting actually to get my teeth into Daniel Kirk's forthcoming before I come to any, um, uh, main judgments, but there are two points that I would make nonetheless. Um, and the first is, I do think it's a mistake to get too hung up on the title God, um, as you know, t- to move from the title God to then to say, now this is a divine figure. Um, when we remember that Satan is called Hotheos in Second Corinthians chapter four, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we need to um, load that single title the way that is often done so if moses is called um god if melchizedek is called god in 
in some and in a particular Qumran text, if Satan can be called God by Paul, um, you know, that gives us room uh, um, to, to think about how that word may be used without necessarily meaning the God in, in the way we understand it. And I, the second point is that we do need to be so careful in all of this that we don't get our procedural knickers into a twist, or that we don't end up focusing on these um, isolated, and I think they are isolated um, uh, texts at the expense of understanding the way Christology is developed as a pattern across the Synoptic Gospels. And so uh, so certainly... Um, um, uh, the Moses as God and, and um, Aaron as your prophet may give some conceptual resources. The question is, do the Gospels draw on that or do they draw on a different one? And how do we adjudicate that? By keeping the Gospels at the forefront of our analysis. And as yet, I, I haven't seen that um, uh, played out in sufficient um, forcefulness and energy and consistency in the debate. I mean, that's what I've tried to do in Paul, but I think that it's time to do that in the Gospels. Yeah, and I think Hayes makes a good case. I just hadn't seen him address that potential counter-argument. But I, I agree that, in a sense, you have an accumulation of evidence to the effect that Jesus is being both uh, related to in ways that people would relate to God and doing things that are elsewhere attributed to God and ascribe titles that elsewhere are ascribed to God. So when you put all that together, it's it's a strong case, although... You know, someone could argue, well, it's not a knockdown case, and, mm-hmm. and absolutely, you know, that's, the, that's, that, yeah, that's, that's the difficulty I'm, in yeah. this, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and knowing in any instance where I think for for Daniel Kirk, I don't know where he's going to go exactly in his book, but in knowing where, for instance, where a gospel writer is saying that Jesus is doing this as the ideal human. Yeah. In other words, this is what humans should be able to do: walk on water if they were truly living up to their humanity. Or he's being portrayed as God, and so evoking these passages from Job where God walks on the water, um, yeah. and and so on. So I, th- I think that's another challenge in there. Absolutely, I think that's that's the that's the cutting edge of discussion now in Christology. I think I think it's going to relate to the Synoptics' portrayal of Jesus, and and there's some really bright guys out there. Um, obviously, Matthew Pates being one of them, but um, but Brand Pitcher, as I mentioned. Um, um, Daniel Kirk. I, I think that the argument is open and shut to, uh, when it comes to Paul. It's clearly a divine Christology, mm-hmm. but with the synoptics, there's room for debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Chris, one of the one of the uh, traditional questions we ask on our podcast, and by traditional, I mean this is the first time we're asking it, but um, <laughs> we're going to start a tradition. Is uh, just stepping back for a moment um, from our our focused discussion on. Christology is uh, what's an idea or a thesis or proposal in New Testament studies that you think needs to die? Hmm. Hmm. Well, I've mentioned form criticism, but I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the hegemony of form criticism needs to die, even if not form criticism in toto. So what does that lead to? To maybe um, just unpack that a little bit. Um, I think um, uh, form criticism ultimately endorses a sceptical reading of the text as as giving us any kind of insight into historical realities. And so they often are passed through uh, individual pericope are passed through the experiences of the early church. And I think that there is room for manoeuvre now to think that that is only one approach to the synoptic gospels and Borkham's testimony approach is at least one other way forward so it's the hegemony of form critical assumptions I think needs to be challenged uh, I so certainly that would be one I um, needs to die I think the uh, uh, this is a, an, a burden um, an individual personal burden of mine and that is the theological naivety that I see amongst New Testament scholars would be something I would like to see die. It's not so much an idea or a thesis, but a reality. Uh, I, I see this an awful lot in engaging with Pauline theology, where um, with the greatest of respect, those who are learned in New Testament schol- uh, scholarship 
don't know their theological answers from their elbows, and it make and it pans out in their exegesis in quite um, um, uh, problematic ways. I, I suppose as well, this is then a call for greater unity in in the disciplines. Uh, interdisciplinary is it interdisciplinary? Yeah, um, so. interdisciplinary engagement between systematic theology and biblical studies. And as well, activism as well. I mean, this is where I'm going at the moment. I've been absolutely swept up by uh, political theory this uh, over the summer because of what's happened in England with Brexit and such like. Um, I'm now starting to realise that it's very difficult to talk about Paul. It's very difficult to talk about Christology as if we don't live in a real world. Um, and I think a lot of the practices of New Testament scholarship seek to isolate us from the real world. And I would like to see... Um, I would like to see that uh, um, uh, that the hegemony of that particular approach also qualified. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, <laughs> well, one of the, this is this is probably uh, speaking again to my own narrative, but I, I think that the that the idea that uh, uh, in fact Paul didn't write all thirteen uh, of, oh, of yeah. the letters. I think that's a that's a thesis that needs to die. I think the emperor has no clothes and has had no clothes for a long time. Uh, and, uh, I've, I've, I've always been of the persuasion, um, that Paul wrote them all, but there's tremendous pressure, uh, when you're doing, uh, graduate studies to, you know, to be critical or something along those lines and accept, uh, the determinations of the guild on these sorts of issues. But, um, uh, I, I, when I was writing my dissertation, in fact, I was counseled, uh, to, uh, you know, to, to restrict my study to the seven mm-hmm. and, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and so I, I left, a, I left a, a little wiggle room and a footnote saying that, you know, that, uh, that I would study these seven, but, uh, but many more, uh, but many would like to include more, uh, mm-hmm. wink, wink, including myself. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that thesis needs to die. So. Hmm. Yeah, and anecdotally, without mentioning names, I do know of one German professor who translated an article um, from English into German, and that article was arguing for the Pauline authorship of the pastorals. Uh, And um, he was, um, uh, what in American terms would be denied tenure, um, uh, on the basis of translating that article into German. Wow. Um, So it's it's certainly a, a hugely political uh, position um, in, in Germany in particular, and less so I think in in, in English speaking scholarship now, but still um, there's a lot to go um, on all of that. I wouldn't endorse the Pauline authorship of the pastorals myself, but the rest, I'm I'm very much in agreement. Hmm. Well, I, I hope to persuade you. I hope to persuade you eventually, Chris, to the truth. Hey, I look forward um, to it. <laughs> I, I'm, um, I'm open to that. Why not? <laughs> Luke Johnson's um, been a real advocate of that, hasn't he? Oh yes, yes he has. Well, at least the, yeah. the second Second Timothy, isn't it? And uh, mm-hmm. and it being based on Pauline um, uh, notes and such like. Yeah. But uh, here's another good question that you can ask uh, if you're asking about things that could die. Mm-hmm. Which which New Testament scholar do you want to see die? Mm, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, wow. Not touching that one. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we could just propose a few names. We don't have to settle on one person because that that would be a little bit exclusionary. Uh, I was thinking if, whole whole schools, you know. Yeah, maybe a short list. <laughs> at least draw up a short list. Yeah. Well, how about Chris? We bring this. So we're, we're we're running shy on time, probably at this point. So why don't we bring this home uh, with a, a more personal question, if you don't mind? And that's this: How does how has the study of Christology challenged or changed you personally? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I think studying New Testament Christology made me realize that it isn't something that was limited to a set of propositions on a sheet of paper. But Paul's Christology is very much about how we live and love and relate as a community with each other and with the risen Lord. And so Paul's Christology has made me realize that it affects, is intertwined with and builds upon networks of relationality in the real world, um, which is why I'd want to see um, bridges between systematic theology and political activism and all of this um, in the light of good, solid, historical, critical exegesis. Uh, I think that there's uh, um, a crying need for, um, for taking Christology on its own terms and then seeing that it's very much about how we live. Thanks, Chris. Amen to that. This has been Matt Bates and Matt Lynch for OnScript with our special guest today, Chris Tilling. 
We hope you've enjoyed our conversation about Christology. If you haven't done so already, rush over to your Amazon cart and buy Chris Tilling's Paul's Divine Christology, published in a reprint by Erdman's uh, just last year. There are links on our website, onscript.study. Until next time, thanks for listening. You've been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.